1 Corinthians 15. Our topic is the uh, is full preterism a damnable heresy part three. And last week we looked at the second coming of Christ. I'm going to uh, just discuss Matthew 24. The uh, I think it's verse 30, which talks about the the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. We we'll discuss that, and then we're going to look at First uh, Corinthians 15, which is the clearest. Paul is actually refuting people who deny the bodily resurrection. So that's a very good passage to look at, and then uh, uh, that'll be very helpful. But let me read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, to each seed its own body. <coughs> now here, here it's very clear he's talking about real bodies, not regeneration or spirit beings or something. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also there is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man... Man, Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And we'll stop there. I could go on and read the rest of the chapter, but we'll get to this. Now, our first point today is we want to look at the differences between Matthew 24 and and the second literal body, uh, bodily coming of Christ. There, this is an area... Now, I understand in prophecy, uh, you'll have prophecies that speak of the immediate future, like in the book of Isaiah, there's a prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ in the midst of talking about something that's going to happen soon, and then there's a leap in the distant future, uh, a virgin, behold, a virgin shall bear a son. So prophecy does do that where you can have talking about the near future and then something jumping way into the distant future. That does happen. But I think in Matthew 24, it's quite clear from, I think it's verse 34, all these things shall come upon this generation. So at least prior to verse 34, we have to take into account that's dealing with that generation. Now, we noted that all judgments in history point us to the final judgment at the end of history. If you look up the term the day of the Lord, you'll find the day of the Lord used of all sorts of judgments in the Old Testament, and it's used of the second coming of Christ in the New Testament. So I say that's the day of the Lord with capital letters. It's referring to the final day, the end of history. <coughs> and that'll usher in the final state. If we study Matthew 24 carefully, we will see many important differences between this great judgment on Israel and the second bodily coming of Christ. And I've already noted certain prophetic events that must take place before Jesus returns that have not yet occurred. Uh, the calling of, the, of Israel has not happened yet. The salvation of Israel has not happened yet. As, as, a, as a whole, or as a, as a major event, that's not happened. We're still in the time of the Gentiles. Yes, Jews are being saved, but most Jews, the vast majority of Jews, are anti-Christian. <clears throat> Let us now note some of the obvious differences between Christ's coming and judgment in Israel in AD 70 and the second bodily literal coming of Christ at the end of the world. <clears throat> and this is important because what, what full preterists do is once they adopt the paradigm that everything happened in AD 70, once they get to passages that talk about the bodily resurrection or the rapture or the final judgment, etc., 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 they have to twist all those things and spiritualize them away and reinterpret them to fit into their paradigm and we've seen that just simply doesn't work. First, 
In Matthew 24, we are told explicitly that the destruction of Jerusalem is not the second bodily coming where the Lord himself will descend from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and meet the resurrected and living saints in the air, the earth's atmosphere. The judgment of Jerusalem is the sign, not of the second coming and final second and final coming of Christ, but that Jesus has been glorified as mediator and sits at the right hand of God in heaven. The passage in mind is Daniel 7, which we looked at. He comes up to the Ancient of Days, presented before him, and sits at God's right hand. Psalm 110, Psalm 2, many passages. In Matthew 24, 30, we read, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. As the King James Version. Here's a literal reading of the Greek. And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in the heaven. The sign is not Jesus appearing in the sky. but rather is the smoking ruins of Jerusalem, which indicates that the Son of Man is in heaven. The Jews always ask for a sign. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. And Jesus pointed out that his great sign to them would be his resurrection from the dead. And, of course, his enthronement at God's right hand. Matthew 26, other passages. He would prove to them, now they're, they're not going to believe, the leadership, most of the leadership will not become Christians. They are not going to believe, but Jesus will prove that he's the true Messiah, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He'll prove it by the destruction of Jerusalem that'll show his authority. <clears throat> the judgment of Israel is the sign to that nation that Jesus is indeed the Lord and Christ, the ruler over the nations. As the exalted Lord, he is able to bring vengeance upon his enemies. Our Lord's allusion to Daniel 7.13 in the second half of this verse makes this interpretation unavoidable. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. Jesus quotes a passage very familiar to the Jews where he is not descending to earth, but rather is ascending to the Father to be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Daniel 7.14 the imagery of Daniel's vision where the mediator comes up to God to receive universal sovereign power indicates that the destruction of Jerusalem is near the beginning of his reign and is not the conclusion of it. The time of the temple's destruction will also be the time when it will become clear that the Son of Man, rejected by the leaders of his people, has been vindicated and enthroned at God's right hand, the right hand of God, and that it is he who is now to exercise the universal kingship, which is his destiny. So they're confusing something near the beginning of Jesus' reign. We could say, you have to understand, when we talk about the glory, Jesus in a state on earth was in a state of humiliation. The suffering servant. He was fully God, he was fully man. There are times when his power of being fully God are exhibited when like the woman who was sick touched him and power went out from him. Most of the time, the power exhibited is simply his anointing of the Holy Spirit beyond measure. But his glory as God, a very God, was hidden while he was on earth. He was in a state of humiliation. But, but then there's a state of exaltation, Philippians chapter 2, the exaltation, and it is resurrection from the dead, where he receives a new glorified body, ascension, enthronement. And those are all to be considered organically related and are part of his glorification. Prophet, priest, and king. He's a king before he died on the cross and rose from the dead. But the kingdom comes with power with the resurrection from the dead, Romans chapter 1, uh, Matthew 28, 18 and following, etc. <clears throat> Jesus was given all power and authority at the resurrection and ascension. Matthew 28, 18, Romans 1, 4, Daniel 7, 14, see Mark 14, 62. 
<coughs> we could talk about Ephesians chapter 1, etc. This, me, this mediatorial kinship with power was demonstrated to the Jews at Pentecost when Jesus sent his spirit to the church, Acts 2, 2-4, 17-21. And compare that, of course, with the prophecy about that from Joel. And at the destruction of Jerusalem when Christ crushed apostate Israel. This is all very clear when you keep this in mind as you read the New Testament, as you read the Gospels. Here's what R.T. France writes. Quote, This saying belongs to the group of three Matthean allusions. 1628, which we'll look at in a moment, 2430 and 2664, which are shared with Mark, Mark 838, 1326, 1426, and which have certain significant features in common. <clears throat> All of them speak of the coming of the Son of Man, which is visible, which is associated with power, and which is to take place within the lifetime of those to whom he is speaking. In this case, verse 34, this generation. And we went into great detail about that a week or two ago. We have seen in 1023 how the imagery of Daniel's vision requires that these passages be interpreted not of a coming to earth at the parousia, but of a coming to God in heaven to be given the universal dominion declared in Daniel 7.14. These are called, by the way, enthronement texts, glorification texts. Remember, he says to the high priest at his trial, you'll see the Son of Man coming in power with the clouds of heaven and so forth. In 2664, that exegesis is now widely recognized, not least because that pronouncement speaks explicitly what is to be true from now on, not at some separate time in the future. The tribes are to see the vindication and enthronement of the Son of Man in heaven, but how are they to see it? That is, to know that it is true, not by a celestial phenomena. The early church fathers saw the word sign, and a lot of them said there's going to be a, a pure giant cross in the sky. That was a popular interpretation. But by what is happening on earth as the temple is destroyed and the reign of the Son of Man in heaven begins to take effect in the gathering of his chosen people. In that case, the sign is not a preliminary warning of an event still to come, but the visible manifestation of the heaven reality already established that the Son of Man is in heaven sitting at the right hand of power. 2664, end of quote. And that's very good. That's very good. The Jewish religious and political leaders and covenant nation as a whole did not believe in their Messiah. They rejected Christ. They said he was born, his mom was a whore. They, they mocked the virgin birth and said, well, no, he didn't have a father because she went out and got pregnant, you know, being, acting like a whore. So they, they which is pretty blasphemous, they, they denied that he was the Christ and they said he was a magician. Uh, they denied that he was filled with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, as the Old Testament prophecies, and said that he got his power from Beelzebub or Satan. They were thoroughly antichrist. <clears throat> they rejected him and murdered him as a false prophet and a blasphemer. After Pentecost, they relentlessly persecuted the church and encouraged the Roman authorities to persecute the church. You read the book of Acts, the Roman authorities, you know, you have to understand, Rome had a kind of pluralism. They had religious pluralism. As long as you worshipped the emperor and he was the number one guy and you offered a pinch of incense to the emperor, you could worship anything you want. It was the Jews who picked up on the Lordship of Christ and tried to get them to persecute the church, which eventually they did, uh, because Christ is above Caesar. Christ is ruling the nations as king. And that's how they got the Romans to persecute the Christians. But if the Jews hadn't been around to spur the Romans on, the persecution might not have even happened, or if it did happen, it would have been far less. The covenant people had become the synagogue of Satan. That's Jesus' own words from the book of Revelation. Consequently, God officially divorced unbelieving Israel and publicly demonstrated that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. <clears throat> he is ruling all the nations. And the most quoted passage in the New Testament is Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord, that is, and the word there is Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, 
So Yahweh says to Jesus, to the Christ, <clears throat> sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Well, who is Jesus' first big enemy? The nation of Israel and the leadership and the unbelievers. Who crushed them? Jesus did. It's a judgment. It's a judgment. Just like World War I is a judgment. These judgments in history, that's why our country, this rampaging crazy stuff about sexuality with uh, cutting off women's breasts and people pretending to be a man and pretending to be a woman and homosexuality and homosexual marriage. It's scary stuff because God will judge our nation for this. <clears throat> In World War I, all the men between 18, I forget what the exact number is, I think 18 and 23, in World War I, one-third of everyone between 18 and 23 was killed in World War I from England and, and, and France and Russia, probably higher in Russia. A third. Dead. Ten million. Dead. Christ is ruling in history. and Christ brings judgment. He has the rod. Now, if you kiss the Son, if you submit to him and you believe in him and bow the knee, there's no necessity for judgment. But if you spit in his face and you reject his law and you blaspheme, which is what the nations are doing now, you can expect serious judgments. <clears throat> and this interpretation, of course, makes sense grammatically as well. The sign is linked more closely to the preceding words. The sign belongs to or is, a, uh, or is about the Son of Man who is enthroned in heaven. It is not a sign that appears in the sky. The coming of Christ bodily with his angels literally does not need a sign. It is the reality. <clears throat> and there are a number of other reasons why the coming is a coming in judgment in the first century, not a literal bodily coming, as I just mentioned, number one. The sign is something uh, identified as something that is observable then shall appear. What shall appear? Yet a sign in Scripture always points to a spirituality or truth, but it's not the thing itself. Do you understand how a sign works? If it's Jesus appearing in the sky, it's not a sign. It's, that's the reality. That's the, that is the reality. You don't need a sign for that because he is there. A sign points to the reality. Circumcision is a sign of union with Christ and regeneration. Baptism symbols cleansing from sin, but it is not that cleansing. Only the blood of Christ cleanses from sin. And of course, Peter, he says, yeah, yeah, you can wash your skin. Water will wash your skin. It doesn't wash away sins. That's what Christ does. If the sign is Jesus in the sky, like the New American Standard Bible, which is generally a good translation, then it is not a sign, but it is the reality. Two. And then, of course, we looked at this a little bit before. The broad context of the gospel supports the interpretation that the sign indicates that Jesus has been resurrected, has ascended to the Father, and is enthroned at Yahweh's right hand. <clears throat> In the parable of the vine dressers, the coming to the vineyard, remember he sends, he sends some of his servants, they beat him up. He sends others, and they beat, up, they beat him up and kill him. Then he, oh, I'll send my son, and they'll, they'll respect my son. And they kill the son. That's obviously Christ. And the, 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 the servants were obviously prophets. After the vine dresser, uh, <coughs> in the parable of the vine dressers, uh, the coming to the vineyard coincides with the destruction of Jerusalem. After describing the vine dressers who kill the owner's son, Jesus asks, now he's talking to the Pharisees and the leadership, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, and by the way, this is Matthew 21, 40 to 45. <clears throat> when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers who just killed his son? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, and he's quoting Isaiah. I forgot to write what part of Isaiah. Have you never read in the scriptures? 
the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. <coughs> and here's Jesus' application. Therefore I say to you, he's talking to the leadership and the Pharisees, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That nation is the International Church of Christ. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. That fits perfectly with Matthew 24. Even the premillennialist commentator, Henry Alford, says regarding this passage, quote, We may observe that our Lord makes, when the Lord cometh, coincide with the destruction of Jerusalem, which is incontestably the overthrow of the wicked husbandman. This passage, therefore, forms an important key to our Lord's prophecy and a decisive justification for those like myself who firmly hold that the coming of the Lord is in many places to be identified primarily with that overthrow. And that's his commentary on the Greek New Testament. And he's a premillennialist. He's not, you know, he's not uh, a, a postmillennialist, a modern postmillennialist. So that's one passage. Another broad context support is, of course, Matthew 26, 64, which we considered before, where Jesus tells the chief priests, elders, and the whole Jewish council at his trial. Listen to this. <coughs> Nevertheless, they ask him, are you the son of God? Are you the Christ? Now, and then he'll say, nevertheless, I say to you. First he says, first he says, verily, it is, it is as you say. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus teaches, and there's no way to get around this, you that some of the members of the Sanhedrin will still be alive to witness the proof that he is the Christ who has been made the exalted Lord at his resurrection and ascension. He appeals to two Old Testament prophecies. Remember, he's talking to scholars here. He's talking to people that are supposed to know these things. <clears throat> the first is Psalm 110, which speaks of the Messiah being exalted to God's right hand to rule over all the nations. The second is Daniel 7, 13 to 14, which speaks of the Messiah's ascension to Yahweh in heaven to receive all power and authority. The point of the phrase, you, and it's plural, you, plural, we'll see, is that a time is coming in your lifetime, okay, some who were there will be alive, to be witnesses, when the tables will be completely turned. Jesus, in a state of humiliation, who is being unjustly judged by these wicked, corrupt, dishonest, unbelieving judges, will within a generation be judged by the exalted Christ. And this fits perfectly with the first part of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 1 to 35. It fits perfectly. And it's the only way to really interpret that passage. It doesn't make sense any other way. Did they literally see Jesus sit, sit in God's right hand? No. The effect of that was the proof that he was sitting at God's right hand. The judgment. The judgment. <coughs> and here's another one, Matthew 16, 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And... I've mentioned this before, but the coming on the clouds terminology, yes, the second coming, he'll be coming in clouds, but it's also used throughout the whole Old Testament of judgments. God comes in the clouds to judge. Consequently, the coming on the clouds in Matthew 24, 30 is not a second bodily coming reference, but a coming in judgment in line with regular Old Testament judgment references. He came in clouds to Egypt to judge, I mean, he came in clouds to judge Egypt, to judge Babylon, Medo-Persia, you name it. He did, the coming in the clouds terminology is throughout the Old Testament. During the second bodily coming, Jesus will 
literally descend, and there will be literal clouds, but not simply, not simply metaphors or symbols of divine majesty, often entailing destructive storms of God's wrath. And here's some passages you can up later. Isaiah 19.1, Psalm 18.10-14, which, by the way, is a psalm that they used to sing, at, all the Jews would sing Psalm 18 at the uh, <coughs> Passover. Lamentations 2.1, Ezekiel 33-5. And then second, we also see proof that full preterism is wrong in the simple fact that physically dead believers were not raised in the Jewish war, AD 66 to 70. <clears throat> and living believers did not meet Jesus in the air, the earth's atmosphere at that time. Now, I'm not going to go into it. I have a book on this I wrote 20 years ago or so uh, where I, I refute all this stuff. But they believe that meeting Jesus in the air is just a reference to some spiritual experience that believers have. Which, if you read, we looked at the Thessalonians passage in detail last week, that view is absolutely absurd. It's clearly, you've got an unbiblical heretical paradigm and you're, you're trying to hammer and force other places in Scripture that contradict it into your view. In Matthew 24, 1-35, our Lord did not tell his disciples that dead believers would be raised and living saints would join them and Christ in the air. Instead, he warned Christians to flee Jerusalem and go into hiding in the mountains to avoid the slaughter, Matthew 24, 15-21. And historians tell us that that is precisely what happened. A major portion of the Christian community fled to Pella because of the prophecy of Matthew 24. The Jerusalem believers escaped the siege and the terrors that went with it. No, no Christians were killed in the city. They all were gone. And, you know, you have to look at Acts. The people in Acts that lived in Jerusalem, they're all selling their property and they're giving their money away to all the saints that were poor and that needed help. Well, they were doing that knowing that the city would be destroyed. It's, you know, you have to look at that in that context. Moreover, if the Olivet Discourse were discussing Jesus' second bodily coming, which will be accompanied by the general resurrection and the final judgment, why would our Lord be so concerned to preserve the lives of Jewish believers? The destruction by the Romans was so severe <coughs> that it needed to be shortened to preserve the lives of the elect. Matthew twenty four twenty two, Mark thirteen twenty. If the dead would be raised out of their tombs and the living were about to receive glorified bodies to meet Jesus as he descends... This concern to preserve the church, to minister and preach the gospel in the future would be completely superfluous, would be unnecessary. Further, Luke's account clearly says that pre-consummate his human history will continue after this, after this coming. This is the, the, the account written for Gentiles, Luke 21, 23-24. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. <coughs> this passage is devastating to the full preterist theory. Luke says that death and destruction awaited the Jews. And this would lead to an indefinite period of time where the Gentiles would be the focus of God's blessing. And this period has already lasted almost 2,000 years. And the Jews getting their nation back, which is a big, huge thing to modern premillennialist dispensationalists, I really don't think it has any significance at all. It might, it might not, but I don't think it's it's, it's a big factor in prophecy. I listened to a prophecy show yesterday. There's one on the radio, and 99% of the show is pure fantasy. It's just they're making up stuff. When this prophecy's passage is considered in the light of the more detailed prophecy of Paul in Romans 11, 25-26, it is obvious that there will be a long period of history when the Gentiles are converted before the Jews and mass embrace their Messiah. Luke 21, 24 clearly implies that the destruction of Jerusalem is near the beginning of Christ's reign. It's not the end of the millennium, as full preterists assert. The seasons will continue from the destruction of Jerusalem until the day Jesus returns bodily in glory. Because the full preterist mistakenly equates the coming of Christ to destroy Jerusalem with the second bodily coming at the end of history, he must attempt to spiritualize the resurrection of the dead saints, the rapture of the living believers, and the bodily descent of Christ to meet saints in the air. 
and they have to do incredible exegetical gymnastics, you know, spiritualizing passages, completely ignoring what the passage says. <clears throat> you read these passages about the second coming. A child could understand them. They're crystal clear. They're not meant to be spiritualized away to mean some spiritual experience that we have. You know, meeting Jesus in the air means that believers will have a spiritual experience with Christ in their spirit. That's what Phil Preterist will say. Nonsense. Nonsense. He's descending to crush the wicked. And then third, and this is tangentially related, although at times the term world in the New Testament can refer to the civilized world of the Roman Empire. There's a passage, I forgot to look it up, where Paul basically says, yeah, I preach the gospel throughout the world. He's, he, he means that was a common term among Jews and Romans for the Roman Empire, the civilized, uh, which they consider to be the civilized world. <clears throat> However, that, that's true. You can find those passages. The divine imperative of discipling all the nations, Matthew 28, 19, due to the fact that Jesus has received all authority in heaven and earth at his resurrection and enthronement, his ascension and enthronement, has primarily been carried out after the destruction of Israel in AD 70. Paul, writing in the late 60s, says, look, I'm going to go to Spain. My plan is to, you know, when I get out of jail, I'm going to go to Spain and minister to the people there. And, of course, Paul has had, uh, was executed by, I guess, by Nero and never made it to Spain. But after the destruction of Israel in AD 70, God would judge the Roman Empire, and on the ashes of the Roman Empire, Christian Europe would arise. And if you look, uh, you, you can look at church history, and you can see, here's when God evangelized the Irish, here's when God evangelized the, uh, the people in Great Britain, and then here's when they got the Irish, and, here's, and there were Irish missionaries, and there were people who went to Bulgaria, and who went to Eastern Europe, and went to Russia, and all these things happened, Long, most of it happened quite a bit after the destruction of Jerusalem. So, if you believe that the second coming is AD 70, well, the Great Commission never really happened. <laughs> it never really happened. The Anglo Saxons, the Celts, the Germanic tribes, the Slavs, the Northern Europeans, the Japanese, the Indians, the Chinese, the Vietnamese, and the peoples of North and South America were not evangelized before the destruction of Jerusalem. If full preterists were consistent, they would argue that all the elect have already been gathered. Okay, the passage that talks about the angels or messengers going throughout the land, gathering the elect, that's talking about the preaching of the gospel within Israel, the land. It's not talking about, it's not saying that, oh yeah, all the elect will be gathered throughout the entire earth before Jesus comes back in AD 70. That didn't happen. That's a fact. We know when these different areas were first evangelized. And we know, like for, for example, when France became a Christian nation. We know when Russia, you know, these were pagan areas. These areas were hardcore pagan. And the leadership proclaimed themselves Christians and said, we're now a Christian nation. That happened in all these nations. And uh, in France, I, I've studied France more than Russia, but in, but in France, they persecuted uh, they persecuted pagans who wouldn't, who refused to believe in Christ and bow the knee to Christ. They persecuted them relentlessly because he said, we're a Christian nation now. We're not going to allow the worship of idols anymore. And a lot of people said, well, hey, forget that. I like this. I like idolatry. And they were persecuted. <clears throat> so if we take the full preterist view, there's no real need for evangelism or church planning. The time of the Gentiles has already been fulfilled. The fullness of the Jews has already come. And the new heavens and the new earth where sin, death, disease, and sorrow are no more has already come. But since these things did not happen by AD 70 or in AD 70, they must equivocate and twist scripture like the damnable heretics that they are. Okay, now let's turn. We'll just briefly look at 1 Corinthians 6, 13 to 15. But we're going to focus mainly on 1 Corinthians 15 where... Paul, there were people in the church of Corinth that denied the bodily resurrection. And Paul flat out hammers them. He hammers them. Here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 15. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. 
and the Lord for the body. He's not talking about the soul. He's talking about the body, your physical body. You don't have, uh, people don't have sex with their spirits. They have sex with their bodies. And God will, ra- uh, and God will raise both, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Due to the influence of Neoplatonism, there were, there were people in Corinth who thought, well, you know, my body's not important. The flesh is not important. What's important is the spirit. So if I go have sex with prostitutes, you have to understand, uh, prostitution was widespread and legal in the Roman Empire. Uh, and there were, in cities, there were whorehouses all over the place. There's some good stuff on the internet about this. Uh, they would just go visit a prostitute. Well, it's just my body. That's going to be destroyed. It's no big deal. And Paul says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. These verses are particularly devastating to the full preterist position because it's very clear that Paul is speaking about the human body and not regeneration or ethnic Israel. The first statement, food is, foods are for the stomach and the stomach for foods, is likely a Corinthian slogan. Paul acknowledges this fact, but points out that his time is coming when food and stomachs will no longer be necessary. Then Paul makes a statement that is probably intended as a refutation of another unstated Corinthian slogan, which was used to excuse sexual immorality. The apostle has no problem acknowledging that food and stomachs are needed in the present age, but he strongly refutes the unsaid saying that food and stomachs are need uh, <coughs> the unsaid saying or what has been implied from the food saying to sexual activity that some Corinthians were using as a just, it as a justification for sexual relations with prostitutes. <clears throat> Paul's construction of the propositions implies that some Corinthians had developed the following line of reasoning. Since everything is permitted, and since food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, after all, God will destroy them both in the end, and since all bodily appetites are pretty much alike, that means that the body is for sex and the sex is for the body because God will destroy them both in the end as well. You see the reasoning they were using. Now, Jesus ate food with his resurrected body, but we don't need stomachs. We don't need to eat in the exalted state. Food is totally unnecessary. There will be no marriage. There will be no more marriage. We don't need food to live, etc. Paul refutes this antinomian false reasoning with two closely related arguments. First, Paul points out that our physical bodies were not created to be used for sexual immorality, but in order to serve and glorify God. The eating of food is a matter of adiaphora. It's something indifferent, and it's necessary in the present age to sustain life. But sexual immorality is a violation of God's law. We exist to serve God by obeying his word. Moreover, the Lord Jesus came for the body. The body is not to be discarded, but is to be saved. Our bodies were purchased by Christ's blood, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6.20. They are temples of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19, and are mystically united to the Savior, 1 Corinthians 6.15. Christ is for the body to inhabit and glorify it. Remember, Christ saves the physical body, not just your spirit. This statement about Jesus being for the bodies of Christians leads directly to Paul's next argument. Second, the Lord is for our bodies, and we'll, we'll demonstrate this by raising them from the dead, just like he raised Jesus from the dead. So Christ's work of redemption includes the whole person, both body and soul. The fact that our earthly bodies will be resurrected in this context is obviously intended to cause us to treat our bodies with reverence and respect as the future organ of our glorified personality. Because of our union with Jesus in his resurrection, our body is destined for a resurrection of life unto eternity. So Paul obliterates the idea that we can do what we like with our bodies, which is Gnosticism, is Neoplatonism, as some Corinthians wrongly suppose, because they will be destroyed and will not be part of the consummate kingdom. Our bodies will indeed be changed and transformed, but there is a true, vital, genuine connection to our bodies of flesh that lived on the earth and were placed in the grave. Paul's teaching, the body cannot be disregarded as unimportant, the body is for the Lord. That the Father raised the Son from the dead and not simply caused his soul to persist through bodily dissolution indicates something of the dignity of the human body. 
bodily life enshrines permanent values. The resurrection forbids us to take the body lightly. And it implies don't sin with your body. Serve God with your body. That's what Paul's reinforcing here. What do members of the mafia, what do members of the cartels do to the human body when they kill their enemies? They don't simply just shoot them in the head and leave it at that. They cut off their hands and their legs and they cut them all apart and they rip their heart out and they burn their face off and they do all kinds of disgusting things. Note once again that Paul's whole argument is dependent on a literal understanding of the resurrection of the body. If you don't believe in a literal resurrection of the human body, his whole, his whole argument makes no sense at all. With a case of food, God would destroy or abolish it. Catechistai. But regarding the physical bodies of Christians, he will raise them up and save and glorify them forever. If we remove the resurrection of physical bodies from this passage, then we completely destroy Paul's argument. Here's what Alfred Plummer says, a great commentator. <clears throat> In the case of Soma, body, and the Kyrios, Lord, to which it is related, God has raised the Kyrios and will raise up the Soma of everyone who is a member of him. The contrast between the two cases is incomplete. On the one hand, the close relationship between the Lord and all true Christians is shown by the double conjunction, Kai ton Kyrion, Kai Imas. What I'm saying here, without trying to be too complicated, I'm just saying that grammatically you can't interpret this passage any other way. Grammatic historical way of interpreting scripture proves the bodily resurrection. Now, full preterist views of the resurrection make a complete mockery of Paul's argument, because of none of them will have a true lasting significance or place of it for the human body in relation to the resurrection. Full preterists, if you read them, they don't believe in a bodily resurrection. They believe that you're giving a you're given a spirit. You're a spirit being. You, yet there's no corporealness to you. There's no there's no there's no flesh and bone. You're you you become a spirit being like the angels. That's their concept of the resurrection. That's their concept of of the eternal state of Christians, which is Neoplatonic and Gnostic, completely unscriptural. And Paul, as we look in First Corinthians 15, will call it a, a, a terrible damnable heresy. Would Paul order the men of corrupt to stop using their physical bodies to fornicate with prostitutes because someday Jesus will have a revival? Would he tell them to respect their physical bodies and use them in a holy manner because someday their physical bodies will rot, turn to dust forever, and be replaced with a completely different body that has no connection whatsoever to the body of the tomb? In fact, it's not even a corporeal body. It's not even a body with flesh and bone. It's simply a spirit. The full preterist teaching places the physical bodies of the saints in the same category as food and stomachs, which will be done away as unnecessary in the eschaton. Now, there's eschatological pictures of the wedding feast of the Lamb and all this. Uh, there may be fellowship meals in the eschaton, but they're not needed. We don't need food to live. We don't even need water. We don't even need air, really. Consequently, the parallel argumentation that Paul uses completely breaks down. Would Paul teach his men to treat their physical bodies with holy respect and dignity? Because in AD 70, the souls of the saints trapped in Hades will be released to go to heaven. That's one very popular full preterist view. And the answer is, of course not. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Paul gives the Corinthians the assurance that God will raise up their physical bodies by his power so they understand they are not, they are not just souls, but also their bodies are precious in God's sight and will take part in their eternal salvation. Only this biblical truth will cause the men of Corinth, who are apparently influenced by Greek thinking about the physical body, to sanctify their bodies unto Christ. Get this Neoplatonism, this Greek thinking out of... That was one of the... Uh, among the Gnostics in the, in the early that Paul uh, excuse me that John first that John wrote against, uh, there was a sect of the Gnostics who who basically taught this very doctrine that since your your body your material aspect is unimportant and it is degrading and bad, they go ahead and do whatever you want with it, 
have sex with prostitutes all you want and, and do whatever you want with it because it's just going to it's going to be done away with anyway. And apparently that made its way into the church at Corinth. The apostle continues to argue against using the physical body to fornicate in verses 15 to 20. Note that each argument clearly deals with the physical bodies of the saints. Number one, we must not take our physical body which was joined to Christ and join it to a prostitute, verse 15. Number two, it is immoral, inappropriate, and disgusting to take what is spiritually joined to Christ and then join it together in one flesh with a prostitute, verses 16 to 17. <clears throat> These verses are an elaboration on verse 15. Number two, the man who commits sexual immorality, number three, the man who commits sexuality sins against his own body, verse 18. Number four, our physical bodies are temporal, the holy, temples of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, you'll notice all these are talking about physical bodies. Number six, therefore we are obligated to glorify God with our physical bodies. This obvious fact makes it impossible for the full preterist to circumvent the meaning of this passage. Every single point Paul's making assumes Christ saves your physical body. Your physical body is united to Christ, not simply your spirit. The mystical union applies to your physical body. That's what Paul says. So all these arguments are based on Paul's assumption, his teaching, his inspired, infallible teaching, that there's a resurrection from the dead of real physical bodies. Now we come to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians we have Paul's 15, we have Paul's most extensive teaching on the resurrection of the saints. A careful examination of the portions of this chapter which are relevant to the debate on the resurrection between Orthodox Christians and Volpreterists will solidify and strengthen our faith in the historic creedal teaching on this all-important doctrine. <clears throat> Paul's purpose in writing this chapter was to defend and define the doctrine of the future literal bodily resurrection of believers from the dead. And this is clear. It's explicit. Paul's statement, verse 12, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Indicates that the reason Paul wrote this chapter was to deal with people in the church who were denying the future bodily resurrection of, the, of Christians. Paul doesn't go into a dissertation on regen regeneration. He goes into a dissertation about the literal bodily resurrection of the saints. Verses 35 to 58 indicate that the false teachers at Corinth apparently objected to the corporeal aspect of the resurrection. Although we do not know what specifically caused the rejection of a bodily resurrection, it is likely the influence of Greek philosophy, probably some kind of Platonism or Gnosticism, perhaps coupled with their perverted concept of spirituality. In light of 1 Corinthians 6.13, it is probable that they regarded the salvation of the body as unnecessary. If you believe that the body is bad, the corporeal, material aspect of the human is bad, inferior, which is the Greek view, then why would you cherish a bodily resurrection. You wouldn't. They believe that the physical body would eventually be destroyed. Because they view the physical body as inferior and necessary, they redefine the future resurrection in a purely spiritual manner, which is exactly what full preterists do. It is for this reason that 1 Corinthians is so well suited to refute the full preterist heresy. This chapter contains three divisions in subject matter. The first part of the chapter, 1 to 11, the apostle appeals to the commonly held belief among the Corinthians that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Paul emphasizes the historical factual nature of our Lord's resurrection by appealing to a number of important points. First, he appeals at the beginning, verses 1 to 2, and the end, verse 11, of the section to the fact that the Corinthians had accepted the true gospel from Paul. Okay, you believe the gospel that I preached. Part of that gospel is that Jesus literally came out of that tomb bodily. For Jesus, there was a literal bodily resurrection. And you can't deny it when you read the gospels. And uh, Jesus says, I'm not just a spirit. Does a spirit have flesh and bones like I have? Real body came out of the tomb. And even full preterists admit that Jesus had a literal bodily resurrection. They admit it. In other words, given the fact that Paul had preached the full content of the gospel and the Corinthians had believed it and owe their very salvation to this teaching, then how could they now accept a doctrine that implies that it is not true? You're contradicting your profession, your original profession of the gospel. If they do not hold fast to the gospel, that is, uh, if they do not hold fast to the gospel, that is, if their current position is as to a no resurrection is correct, then Christ didn't rise from the dead which in turn means that they did indeed believe in vain. 
If they are right, everything is a lie. And they cease to exist as believers altogether. And that is why we say confidently, explicitly, with no apologies, that full preterism is a damnable heresy. Paul essentially says, look, if you deny the resurrection of the body, you've implied that Christ didn't rise from the dead bodily. Because the resurrection of us bodily is part of the gospel. And it's connected to our union with Christ. As we just saw in Corinthians, Paul not only talks about union with Christ regarding our spirits, but he talks about union with Christ, the mystical union has an effect upon our bodies. Our bodies come out incorruptible and perfect because of our union with Christ. Second, Paul explains the gospel of sin for two fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. The sacrificial substitutionary of death of Christ on the cross and the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, verses 3 to 4. Paul mentions the fact that our Lord was buried and then rose to emphasize the historical fact that the Savior's dead physical body was placed in a tomb and consequently his corpse was raised and came out of the tomb. The resurrection of Christ's body, Paul emphasizes, is an objective historical fact. You deny that, you're not a Christian. It is not metaphorical or simply some spiritual phenomenon. It's literal. It's bodily. It happened. Third, Paul gives a list of appearances of Christ, which includes Cephas, the Twelve, 500 brethren at once, James, and all the apostles, and Paul. This muster of witnesses indicates the importance that Paul attaches to the resurrection of the Lord. He is about to show its consequence for the Christian faith, and he lays the foundation by showing how well-based is the belief in it. The evidence for the resurrection of Christ, the literal bodily resurrection of Christ, is overwhelming. He appears to the women. He appears to all the apostles. He appears to Paul. He appears to James. He appears to 500 at once. That might have happened when he ascended. Who knows? Well, that might have, that might have happened when he declared the Great Commission. We don't know. The gospel, the, the resurrection is extremely well attested. So reliable is the evidence that it must be accepted as fact. And then, after talking about the resurrection of Christ, he refutes the no bodily resurrection position. In the second part of the chapter, 12 to 34, Paul builds his argumentation upon the teaching of the first section and sets forth an airtight, logical refutation of the Corinthians' no bodily resurrection position. It's just some of the Corinthians, not all of them, but some of them. And this section is devastating to the full preterist concepts of the resurrection of the saints because the apostles' argument could be applied very clearly to full preterists. Their position is really no different than the no-resurrection position of the Corinthians. This section contains three arguments designed to prove the absurdity and impossibility of the no-bodily resurrection position. Number one, Paul argues that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then our Lord did not rise from the dead. Verses 13 to 15b. If there is no resurrection, bodily, literal, of Christians from the dead, with their new glorified bodies, Christ didn't rise from the dead. That's Paul's argument. I didn't come up with that. That's what Paul says. So if we say that you're a full preterist and you deny the bodily resurrection, you're not a Christian, that's what Paul says. That's not my opinion. I'm not being a jerk. That's what Paul says. The Greek literally reads, literally, but if a resurrection of dead men, anastasis necron, is not, neither Christ has been raised. Then the apostle lays out the shocking implications of such a statement. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith in Christ is worthless. The apostolic message is untrue, and no one is saved. Verses 12 to 17. Moreover, everyone who has believed in Christ and then died has perished forever. Verse 18. Their bodies will never come out of the grave. Paul sees at once what others at first apparently failed to see. The resurrection in general cannot be denied without ultimately advancing to a denial also of Christ's resurrection. Both stand and fall together. Now, why does Paul say, say something so intense? Because the Jews didn't think like the Greeks. The Jews didn't think that your body was a piece of trash or some inferior material, corporeal thing that you could just let, let rot and fall, fall away forever. The Jews believed, they always believed in the salvation of the soul and the body. 
For them, the idea that just your soul became saved and your body rotted away, that's anathema to them. And it's anathema in the New Testament as well. Christ saves your soul, Christ saves your body. And if you don't believe that he saves your body, you're not a Christian. And you're implicitly implying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Because it's our union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, his literal resurrection, that gives us life. It, 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 it applies, obviously, to regeneration. And it applies, obviously, to our literal coming out of the tomb to receive a new glorified body. Paul's argument, which is repeated in verse 15, disproves the full preterist position because his statement, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen, clearly assumes a literal bodily resurrection of uh, a literal resurrection of dead bodies. The apostles' argument would be invalid if the resurrection of the saints was defined in a completely different manner than the Redeemer's resurrection, which is what the full preterist does. If our resurrection has nothing to do with Christ's resurrection, if it's not the same, if it's completely different and we never receive our dead bodies back and we're simply some kind of spirit beings like angels, which is what full preterists teach, then Paul's argument doesn't work at all. If Paul is saying there is no plural A, then there can be no singular A. That's what Paul's saying. If there's no plural A, there can be no singular A. If we define the saints' resurrection as purely a spiritual experience or a metaphor for a revival in ethnic Israel, which are both views of the full preterist, then Paul is comparing apples to oranges. He would be saying that if there's no plural B, then there can be no singular A, which, of course, is not a sound argument. The fact that full preterists can find references to spiritual resurrections in Scripture does not enable them to circumvent the clear meaning of Paul's argument. Yes, the Bible teaks, talks about spiritual resurrections. Re regeneration is compared to a spiritual re resurrection. There's the, the great passage in Ezekiel where it talks about the revival of Israel as, as people having their flesh come back on and bones come out of the graves and all that. Yes, th there are more resurrections that are metaphorical, but, but not here. If, Jesus, if, if there is not a literal bodily resurrection of the saints, Paul says, then Jesus didn't literally bodily come out of the tomb. That's Paul's argument. You can't spiritualize that away. The clarity of Paul's argument cannot be denied. His resurrection was a bodily, physical, literal trans resurrection out of the tomb. Full preterists have a heretical, unbiblical understanding of the resurrection of dead believers. They will, of course, vehemently object to what has been said by insisting that they do indeed believe in the resurrection. But if they're dead definition of the resurrection of the saints on the final day is completely different than Christ and the apostles, then what they teach is no better than the doctrine of modernists, Bardians, Gnostics, Neoplatonists, and unbelievers. They deny the, re they deny the resurrection by redefinition. And that's exactly what liberals do. You go to a liberal church and they have a, a lesbian pastor, or they have a sodomite pastor who might be married and he's engaging in sodomy every day, which is a, a, an abomination in God's sight. It's a death penalty offense. And they'll say, oh, do you believe in the resurrection? Yeah, I believe in the resurrection. And then they talk about a spiritual experience that people have. They talk about a spiritual experience. But it's not what Paul's talking about. We either accept the gospel as it is presented in the New Testament or we're not Christians. And then I, I've run out of time. I've tried, well, I wanted to end today, but I'm going to have to... Well, this will give me the opportunity to look at Revelation, the resurrection and Revelation. But let me just... I'm going to end with a passage. I want to end with a, uh, a great quote from Francis Turrington. Because one of the central arguments of full preterists is, you know, you, you die and you're, you turn to dust or you're eaten by sharks and, and then uh, a tree, you know, and then the sharks poop and... You know, the, their argument is, oh, it's just impossible, the idea of a bodily resurrection. That's just obviously impossible. That's what they basically say, which is ridiculous. Well, here's Turrington's answer to that. And, and it's interesting, there was a, uh, I forget his first name, Rogers. Was it John Rogers? The, the guy who was the Anabaptist guy who started the idea of pluralism. Uh, when, he was, when he died and was buried, they planted an apple tree on top of his grave as a memorial to him. Here's an apple tree. Well, eventually... The, for some reason, the, the grave had to be moved. So when they dug him up, the apple tree, 
had sent roots into the top, the top of the coffin where his head was. The roots followed his spine, where his spine was, his body, and they branched out where each leg was. So, in other words, the roots had completely absorbed the rotting flesh of his body that turned to dust, because it's very nutritious. If you, for example, the killing fields of Cambodia, where the murders took place and they just left thousands of dead bodies, the grass and the vegetation there is way thicker and more rich because it's, feed, it's feeding on the decomposing flesh of humans. And then they were eating the apples from this tree that had absorbed his dead body. And they'll say, oh, well, how can you believe in a resurrection? Well, here's John Owen. I mean, not John Owen. This is uh, Francis Turrington. Quote, To the objections drawn from the scattering of the corporeal dust, the devouring of human flesh by brutes and cannibals, the words of our Savior furnish an abundantly satisfactorily reply. Ye do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For these human reasonings arise from an ignorance of Scripture and the absolute and infinite power of God. For whoever is firmly persuaded of both can easily beat forth such cavails. Truly, if the thing was to be measured by human strength, this would end the matter. But since it is a work of God, whose knowledge nothing can escape, whose power nothing can hinder, who can suppose, who can suppose this to be impossible? It is as easy for God to restore the dead, their own bodies, and to separate them from all other bodies, even of cannibals themselves, who may have devoured others, as it was easy to form the body of the first Adam out of the dust, or to bring all things out of nothing. If a careful and attentive head of the family knows well where each thing is to be found in his house, however large, why should God, whose wisdom and power are infinite, not know where the matter of our bodies lies, concealed? since the whole world is far smaller to him than the most contracted chest or case to any man. Therefore, he can by this almighty nod alone recall these who at any time may have either been devoured by beasts or turned into ashes or dissolved into moisture or sunk into the waters or exhaled into the air. In other words, when, like when you cremate somebody, part of their body goes up into the sky. You know, the crematorium at Auschwitz, there was a black smoke and you could smell the burning flesh. <clears throat> or cave or recess, which is either concealed from the knowledge of the Creator or can escape its power. For as nothing vanishes into nothing, and always at least a minute particle containing the seed of the new body remains, which, and which, wherever scattered and thrown, nature holds at least in her bosom and care. So she restores it to God, asking it back. Here belongs the passage of Tertullian, one of the early, earliest of the Church Fathers. Quote, Not the soul alone is separated. The flesh also has a place of concealment in the waters, in fires, in birds, in beasts, since it seems to be dissolved into these as if poured into the vessels. If also the vessels themselves have ceased, since it is slowed out of them also, it will be absorbed as if in a roundabout way uh, into its mother earth, that it may again be recovered from her. It's from On the Resurrection of the Flesh. And here's back to Turrentin. Besides, neither is it necessary for the essence of the same body with, that all of its particles of dust be reckoned up and united together in the new formulation. It is sufficient that the principal and more solid parts remain, for every day some particles perish from the body and some are added to it. And still we see the same man remains. In other words, uh, I was told, I was taught as a child, I don't know if this is true or not, that your flesh, your flesh and blood, I don't know about your bones and teeth, but your flesh and blood are completely replaced every seven years. Is that true? You've heard that? I've heard that, you know, because your, soul, you know, your cells die and are expelled, and then you, your body creates, you know, you're creating new blood cells every day. You're creating new white blood cells every day. When parts of your body uh, die off, your skin is shed every day and you have new skin cells forming every day. So every seven years, you have new cells and new blood. But it's still you and the DNA is exactly the same. So this idea that it's impossible for God to raise the dead is, is just simply unbelief. It's a denial of the doctrine of God. It's easy for God to do it. He created everything. If he can create everything, the whole universe, he can easily resurrect dead bodies. But I, I ran out of time. We'll finish Corinthians 15, and I'll go ahead and look at Revelation 20, which says, 
there's a part about the resurrection in there, and it talks about those who died and were buried. You know, you know, you're committed to the sea if you die in a in war. If you die in a ship, they put you in a bag and they weight it down and they throw you into the ocean. You sink to the bottom of the ocean. It says those committed, those who died in the sea will be raised out of the sea. It's right in Revelation, but we'll look at that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. It's amazing. Jesus died to save our soul, our spirit, and our body. So, Lord, enable us to be obedient with our bodies, to serve Christ with our bodies, to glorify your holy name with our bodies. Not use our bodies as vessels for sin. Not use our bodies to disobey your word. And especially not to use our bodies to become one with a whore or to fornicate with an unbeliever. Help us, Lord, to be thoroughly obedient and covenant-keeping to your holy word as we look forward to the resurrection of the body where we can dwell with your dear son and with you and behold your face forever. So we thank you for this amazing salvation that it is so comprehensive, it is so profound, it is so amazing. We glorify your holy name. We thank you for your dear son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.